my lonely prison wall I heard a young girl calling Michael they have taken you away for you stole Trevelyan corn so the young might see the morn Now a prison ship lies waiting in the bay Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I am David Chen and joining me today he is the man who played T.T. Riley in the Grant Hesloff 2002 film Par 6, Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good because finally, after this whole season, I finally know something about a movie that you brought up. I loved Par 6. I thought Par 6 was a hilarious movie, and I don't know if there's any way to see this at all. We had a terrific cast. It was a lot of fun, and I got to play golf uh, with phony golf balls hitting it at a real movie crew. So you had the movie crew in front of us with plexiglass screens, like you didn't want to get killed. And then we would hit golf balls into or hopefully over the heads of this movie crew. But we shot this in Palmdale. And I, do you know anything about Palmdale, David? No, I don't. Well, besides the fact that last weekend it was probably 120 degrees, Palmdale has high winds. And so Par 6 had the notable, notable moment in one of my first drives down the golf course is I hit the golf ball and I did clear the crew, but the wind was so strong that it blew the golf ball back over my head and it landed behind me in the same shot. Uh, is magnificent. Uh, the movie is memorable for many things, but that for me, I will remember that shot forever. All right. So a, a couple couple things to point out about Par 6. Number one, uh, the plot summary on IMDb is as follows. A cynical <laughs> oh, man returns to his family's homestead in Texas and starts up a golf course with his brothers and sisters. Uh, this movie was directed by Grant Hesloff, a very yeah. talented producer who uh, has produced movies like the Best Picture winning Argo. Um, he also produced a bunch of George Clooney's movies, The Monuments Men, Ides of March, The American, stuff like that, Leatherheads. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, well, 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 Grant guy. and George, Grant and George are, are buds, but Grant Heslov before that was an actor. Uh, and and uh, Grant, God, what was the movie he was in? Was he in... Uh, True Lies? He, he was in some where he plays... He was uh, one of the good guys in True Lies. That's right. That's right. And Grant was a very good actor, but but Grant and George were, were buds, and so they have done a lot of great movies together. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, also, I don't think you can stream this movie anywhere, but I believe the entire thing has been uploaded to YouTube right now. So you can actually... Just watch it on YouTube if you'd like to. So <laughs> you know, you know, it was a hit when you could just upload it. It's there with the real, <laughs> with the real McCoys <laughs> and Sky, <laughs> and Sky King. You know, well, all as well things. as well as our new YouTube series uh, of the Tobolowski Files, Tobo. Uh, Wait, let's also, see if I can remember that. That would be YouTube.com/slash Tobo Files. You, you nailed it. You nailed it, Tobo. Oh gosh, you nailed it. Let's see if I could remember it by the end of the podcast. Indeed, that's going to be the biggest challenge. Yeah. Tobo, I, I want to ask you a question. I was watching Netflix the other day, Ugh. and there, uh, there's a show by Marie Kondo. You know Marie Kondo? No. The the joy of tidying up that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, there's this, yes. There's this whole minimalist movement now, Tobo, where um, she has this philosophy, you know, you should look at all the objects in your home and you should take them into your hand and ask yourself, like, does this spark joy? And if the answer is no, you should get rid of it, throw it out, you know, um, because people have so much clutter in their homes these days. Um, and you know who I thought of when I was watching the show? You, Tobo, because... Uh, not not because your house is necessarily cluttered, 
but because you have a lot of stuff at your house. I've been to your house many, many times. It's always a delight to go there, obviously to see you and Anne, but also because I feel like there's just, the, you know, there are unplumbed depths in that house, like so so many stories, so many knickknacks from your entire career. Uh, yeah, how, how do you feel about all all the stuff that you keep in your yeah, house? Yeah, just keep swimming, David. We 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 have <laughs> with with how terrifying. Yes, people don't know, but it's it it is terrifying, David. How many bits and pieces of our past we carry around with us all the time? For example, right behind my desk, I have a stick I picked up on the ground in Iceland before my last horse ride, before I broke my neck. It's a stick. It's a stick. It's just a plain stick. I haven't been able to throw it away. Why? Maybe I'm resisting letting go of something from that trip when I lost so much, when I almost lost it all. Maybe the stick reminds me that even the fragile, the breakable, can endure if we choose to keep it and protect it. Yeah, that's a good enough answer for today. I have three rocks from the street in front of where Beth and I lived in Illinois because they fit in the palm of my hand. That's the only reason I kept them. I have a volcanic rock from Montana and a pebble from a forest in Finland. I don't know. It's as if I wanted to keep hold of the small part of the earth where I walked during my life. I've not only saved my natural pieces of nothing, I saved my security badge from when I did the Jeffersons Live in front of a studio audience. The live show was like a war with jokes. Every actor there had the same look in his or her eyes that we were about to jump out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. The only comfort we had was that we were all jumping at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And there was no escape. Except for that badge. That badge allowed you to leave the stage and walk around the Sony lot, listen to the traffic outside the gates, You could enjoy the feeling of sun on your face before you had to go back inside, back into battle, and rehearse. Just a piece of plastic on a string. But it provided so much comfort. Whenever I look at that security badge, my first thought isn't about the show. It's about the sun. That no matter how lost you get into your work, the sun will always be there for you. At least it will in California. I have lots of odd pictures stuck in my books. I have a picture of a fish I caught in Alaska, a picture of Bruce holding the pooch taken, boy, gotta be 35 or 40 years ago. I have a picture of Pam Adlon and me sitting on lawn chairs in the sun outside of a house where we were shooting Californication. All of these little scraps of color are like the medals on a general's uniform. All of the battles fought the places served. I found out that not all service medals are for acts of valor. I found that some are just to designate you went to the Arctic or you were on a long tour of duty. Some just justify that you were a good student. Some that you were wounded or held captive. I have a picture of my brother Paul and me making muscles in my dressing room on my opening night on Broadway for the wake of Jamie Foster. Jamie Foster was Beth's third play, but the second to get a New York production in part because of a young actress named Holly Hunter. Beth and I loved Holly. We felt like she was born to play Carnell Scott, the leading role of the Miss Firecracker contest. The idea of doing Miss Firecracker in New York without Holly was inconceivable. But it wouldn't be easy. The stars had to align. We had to make sure there was a theater, there was a producer, and that Holly was available all at the same moment. Beth endeavored to keep Holly busy. She asked her to replace Mary Beth Hurt in Crimes of the Heart on Broadway. Then an opportunity came to move the wake of Jamie Foster to New York. Holly was cast as Pix Rose, my girlfriend. The Miss Firecracker contest could wait. The wake was a hit, we thought. Audiences loved it. Standing ovations through the previews. Talk on the street was it was another Crimes of the Heart. And then we walked into a buzzsaw called the New York Times. Frank Rich decided the party was over. He destroyed the play so thoroughly 
he managed to possibly derail Beth's future as a playwright in New York. When the Manhattan Theatre Club wanted to do the Miss Firecracker contest a year later, the production took on the unfortunate role of being a possible vehicle for resurrection. It's hard enough opening a new play in New York without adding the pressure of complicating storylines. A playwright whose last show bombed in New York. The playwright's boyfriend is directing. They're bringing Budge Threldkeld. Being a director is being a problem solver. Jonathan Demme once described what he considered the difference in directing movies versus directing plays. Jonathan said in movies, the director's job is handling catastrophe. There were new ones every day. In the theater, a director's job is to get everyone to the finish line at the same time. Some actors you have to slow down, some you have to speed up. The performances have to peak at the same time the technical elements come together, and everything has to be running smoothly when the critics arrive, which could be any time right before or right after opening night. Sidebar. I always thought opening night was the most important performance for the success of a show. However, when I did Mornings at 7 on Broadway in 2001-2002, our stage manager told me all, all of the A-list critics see the show before opening night. Opening night was for out-of-town critics, smaller papers, and weekly magazines like Time or Newsweek. Asking Budge to play the part of Max Sam the Balloon Man did not fall into the category of solving problems. It was the opposite. Budge was a creature of impulse. I had no idea if he had the discipline to be in a play with lines and entrances and exits, if he could handle props, like balloons. After all, he was a balloon man. What if he couldn't blow and knot and tie onto a stick on cue? Budge drank. I knew this. And took drugs. And was undependable. I was hoping his innate talent for comedy could balance out the negatives. I thought a lot about this as I drove to the Hollywood division of the Los Angeles Police Department to get Budge out of jail. For what? Who knows? With Budge, it could have been anything. I knew he drank while he drove. He carried a gun. He considered himself a ladies' man. The mathematical combinations of those three could cover any felony you could think of. The officer at the front desk asked me why I was there. I said to pick up Budge Threlkeld. And what is he charged with? I was about to say, I don't know. He was probably drinking a little too much when he was driving. But fortunately, an angel was monitoring my brain function and made an edit on the fly. And I just said, I don't know. After a 30-minute wait, Budge was released into my custody. He waved sheepishly to me as he was signed out. Thanks, pal. I knew I had one phone call, so it was either you or Sluggo, my lawyer. Sluggo charges me for everything, but I knew you'd do it for free. Right, Budge. Budge, what were you arrested for? You won't believe it, pal. Bad plates. My car. I still have Colorado plates with no California registration. I'd get them, but I'd have to go to the DMV. Last time I was there, not only was there a line out the door, but the place was a hotbed of herpes. Not on your privates. How would I know? But on your face. You know, what do do you call that? Fever blisters. Yeah, horrible. I don't know, but something's going on there, pal. Now it turns out to be a blessing I didn't go. No herpes, and we're off to New York where I won't need a car. Fortune favors the brave. Budge. Budge, Jim McClure is coming into town with the keys to his apartment. Then we're going to go, then we're going to start. Can you promise me you won't do anything to get arrested in the next month? Oh, pal, done and done. And I'm sorry about tonight. That must have been very upsetting. Just know it was a fluke that the cop was right behind me and he saw I didn't have the appropriate sticker. He thought it was a stolen car. Budge. I worry about you and drinking and driving. Say no more. Say no more. I will be like a monk. No, they drink. Yeah, they drink a lot. No, sober as a judge. That's what I meant. 
Just remember, Budge, this is California. Drinking and driving. Oh, I know. I know, pal. They lock you up and throw away the key. I appreciate this opportunity. Our New York adventure. Yeah, it's an honor. And I'm not going to do anything to let you down. Thank you, Budge. I went home. I began to work on my script. I made calls to designers John Lee Beatty, Dennis Parrishy. Earlier in the year, I went out to New York to meet with Lynn Meadow and Barry Grove at the Manhattan Theater Club. I wanted to look at their space and impress Lynn the need to cast Holly. I will never forget the day of the first meeting about the Miss Firecracker contest. Not for the meeting itself, but for the walk to the meeting. I was staying on Jim McClure's couch on 84th and Columbus, and the Manhattan Theater Club at the time was on 73rd Street and 3rd Avenue. That meant for the first time in all of my ventures to New York, I would have to walk to the east side on purpose. The most direct route was through Central Park. It was near the beginning of spring, according to the calendar. But according to nature, it was the end of winter. It was the first warm day of the year. And I don't mean California warm. I mean New York mid-40s warm. But the critical fact was that the temperature was high enough to defrost all of the dog turds in Central Park. All of them. At once. Think about it. New York has millions of dog owners, each with at least one dog. Usually little dogs, like Yorkies, to fit in their little apartments. But those Yorkies potty just as often as the big dogs. All winter. Pet owners can either walk their dogs on the street and carry a pooper scooper, or take their dogs to the park without one. It's a New Yorker's way of feeling at one with nature. The earth will be our toilet. Every year, all of Central Park and the dog turds are covered with beautiful blankets of snow. For months. But there is always that one day in the year when the temperature goes above freezing and the defrosting begins. That was this day, this moment. That walk changed me forever. After that hike, I no longer believed in the romance of the four seasons. I was happy with one. At the meeting, Lynn said she was open to casting Holly. She wanted to think about it some more. Oh dear, that was troubling. The unexpected highlight was that she told me that the theater may have scored an apartment for Beth and me. One of the actresses who had worked with them was going out of town to do a show. She had a boyfriend in town, so she had a place to stay if she needed to come back to the city, and she was happy to have the extra money. The apartment was on 66th Street and Lexington by Hunter College, also on the east side. Anne McDonough showed me her apartment before she left town. It was small. Not just small. It was small for what I thought of as New York small. The dining room, living room, bedroom were all represented by a pull-out couch with a black-and-white TV on a wooden table. But it had a nice big window that looked out over the rooftops, and it smelled like four-cheese pizza. I told Anne it was wonderful, and I would treat it as if it were my own little gingerbread house in the enchanted forest. And I asked her why the apartment smelled like pizza. Anne said... There's a pizzeria right below us. It's really wonderful, especially on cold nights. The heat from the ovens makes it nice and cozy. Well, we'll take it, Anne. And thanks for helping us out. I'll send a check to your home address. Yes, that will be fine. And if there's a problem, plumbing, electricity, whatever, here's the number of the super. And that was that. I was a resident of the east side. The east side was like the dark side of the moon. All I knew was that it was rumored to be ground zero for the rich and the elderly. At the theater, someone said there was a lesbian enclave on 1st Avenue north of 80th. I had no idea what they meant. It could have been a street fair or an armed camp. The east side meant no theaters, no friends, no restaurants that I ever heard of. My only hope was the Irish bar. The Irish bar is the glue that holds New York together. Just like people in Ireland, all of the Irish bars seem to be related. O'Shea's, O'Hara's, O'Grady's, Harrigan's, Hennigan's, they were all interchangeable in my mind. Dark wood that smelled of Guinness Stout and Jameson's. 
decorated with street signs from New York and Dublin, menus on chalkboards with the daily specials, which was usually fish and chips, and a dartboard on the wall near the men's room. They had a Harrigan's right down the street from the Manhattan Theater Club. That could be my new island of safety. I flew back to Los Angeles. All I knew at this point was that I had a lot going for me, in theory. I had a great play, a great theater, and a great actress, Holly Hunter, who could carry us across the finish line if the theater approved. At the beginning of March, Beth and I headed to New York to cast the play and start rehearsals. And my mind was besieged with several nightmares. Holly wasn't signed yet. Budge was. I was living over a pizza oven. Budge was over at Jim McClure's on West 84th. And I thought about it some more and I realized that was the upside. Budge wasn't staying with me. He was on the west side. I was on the east side. Safely separated from him by a sea of dog turds. Wall. A dirty old town, dirty old town. The clouds are Holly called us and told us the big day had arrived. She was going to meet with Lynn. I began praying. Sidebar Holly Hunter. There are many reasons Holly Hunter is a great actress. Take your pick. But for me, Holly has something very few have. Courage. All the time. She's ferocious when it comes to fighting for her character, fighting for the play. And that fight is catchy. Not just with the rest of the cast, but with an audience. They become more than observers, they become participants. In the Miss Firecracker contest, you need the audience to believe in Carnell Scott and root for her. With Holly... That's a given, from the first moment to the last. I had a unique relationship with Holly. We started Miss Firecracker in 1984. At that time, we had been friends for about three years. We worked together on Broadway, as I mentioned in Beth's second play, The Wake of Jamie Foster. That was in 1982. But our paths had threatened to cross long before because of an extraordinary coincidence. Holly and I had the same acting teacher, Ed K. Martin, at different times. Ed taught Beth and me at the University of Illinois and taught Holly at Carnegie Mellon. But the key was, Ed had a profound effect on us both. Beth and I moved to Los Angeles in 1976. A year or two later, I get a call from Ed. He asked me if I wanted to play the part of Bo, which is a great role, in Bus Stop, which is a great play, at a regional theater outside of Detroit. The job would pay $400 a week, which was almost twice as much as I was making doing children's theater. I say, yes, absolutely. Ed was delighted and said, fabulous, and you're going to love your cherry. She's a very special actress I taught at Carnegie Mellon. Her name is Holly Hunter. Well, great, I said. I can't wait to meet her. Not true. Not true at all. I didn't really care. I had no idea who this Holly person was. I was sure she was good if Ed liked her. Didn't matter. This was a job. This was a real job. And then I started getting the details from the theater. We would rehearse in the fall and open at the beginning of December in Michigan. They didn't have a hotel for Holly or me. They were going to put us up in trailers in Michigan. Then Beth was upset about me being gone over the holidays. I ended up calling Ed and backing out of the job. There was a silence on the line, and then Ed said, Holly just backed out too. She did, I asked. Yes, she did, said Ed. Well, what are you going to do? 
We are going to do something else, Ed sighed. Stephen, sometimes the show does not have to go on. I felt terrible for letting Ed down. I still can't believe I backed out of that job. It was very unlike me. I've played parts when there weren't even parts. But Bus Stop is an extraordinarily good play, and Bo is a showy, fun part. And it would have been the last part I played with hair. I would have gone out with a bang. Years later, Ed came to see me in a production of The Glass Menagerie I did at the Los Angeles Theater Center. Afterwards, Ed stayed, talked to me. He told me how much he loved our production. I told him, Ed, I appreciate it. I trust your opinion more than anyone's. You're probably the greatest teacher I ever had. Ed laughed and gave me a playful shove. Oh, stop it. No flattery. Well, Ed, if you weren't the greatest teacher I ever had, I learned more from you than anyone else, and I keep learning from you. How do you mean? Ed asked. Things you said in the past. Even things that seem crazy keep coming back to me, and I see what you meant. Oh, I love that, said Ed. Would you like to go out sometime with me and Beth for lunch? I'm sure she would love to tell you a few things. Ed laughed. Oh, I bet she would. I was pretty hard on her, as I recall. I was wrong. I didn't know where her heart lay. She has a gift. She's one of those special writers that comes around every once in a while. Hopefully she's forgiven me. Oh, I know she has, Ed. Whenever we see plays or movies, we talk about seeing an Ed K. moment. Oh, God, dare I ask, what's an Ed K. moment? An Ed K. moment is when an actor tells the truth, really tells the truth, the kind of truth that reveals everything. Oh, I like that, said Ed. I'm touched. Well, let's go to lunch. Yes, said Ed, let's do that. I would love that. Well, I'll call you. We can maybe do it on a Monday. That's our day off. Just call, said Ed. But I didn't. I was too busy with the play. I was too busy on my day off because it was the only day I didn't have the play. Three weeks later, I heard Ed died. How was that possible? I just saw him. We were going to have lunch. To this day, I've not been able to excuse myself for the call not made. In the obituary in the paper, it said Ed had AIDS. We didn't know that. He didn't look sick. It haunts me. Whenever I catch myself thinking about doing something tomorrow instead of today, I have another Ed K. moment. That's the legacy of a great teacher. You listen to them even when they're not in the room. Looking back, I accept that there were positives to not doing the play with Holly living in the trailers in the middle of a blizzard outside of Detroit. Doing that play and those parts, I probably would have fallen in love with her. And certainly, she would have wiped me off the stage. It's hard to imagine which would have hurt the most. Lynn Meadow met with Holly. There was no audition. I suspect Lynn was just holding out as a political move in case she wanted someone in the show that Beth or I didn't want. After the meeting, Lynn called, laughing. Oh, of course, Holly is playing Carnell. I just wanted to talk to her. That nightmare vanished. Then I got a call from Budge. He just got into town and moved into Jimmy's apartment. That nightmare began. Hey, pal, I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm over at Jim's. Everything is cozy. And I've been reading over the script. I'm going to be ready on day one, first rehearsal. And I promise you, No matter what happens here in New York, I'm going to stay away from the horse. What? Budge, what did you just say? You were staying away from horse? The city has many snares, pal. Budge, I'm not doing it. I say I'm not doing it, not even a little. You know, back in the old days, no, 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 Budge. Don't say you're not doing heroin. I was just trying to reassure you. No, doing or not doing horse should not be a consideration. Heroin can't be looked at as a choice not taken. It's not a choice. Understood. I'll I'll just keep working on the script, and I'm going to be word perfect by our read-through. That's not necessary, Budge, but 
That kind of talk makes me feel happy. No more horse talk. You got it, boss man. Putting aside the X factor of Budge, Beth and I managed to get a dream cast, Belita Marino as Popeye. Pat Richardson was playing Elaine. Mark Lynn Baker was Delmont, and dear Margot Martindale was playing Tessie. Sidebar. I met Margot when we were 19. We double-dated to the Lawn Morris Junior College prom. My date was her roommate, Anne Galvin. Anne Galvin's introduction was, This is Margot Martindale. She's hilarious, and you're going to love her. Truer words have never been spoken. Beth and I had been working on the Miss Firecracker contest for about four or five years before this production. We even did an equity waiver production in Los Angeles directed by Maria Gobetti, who used to teach with Ed K. Martin. We knew the play backwards and forwards, but we were still nervous about the first read-through at the Manhattan Theater Club. Footnote. I heard about a study in which they found that the heart rate of a test pilot Flying a new jet for the first time is only equaled by the heart rate of an actor on opening night of a new play. I doubt the the existence of this study. No scientist would ever think to use actors for a test group. No costumer would ever allow an actor or actress to go on stage opening night with electronic sensors and battery packs under their clothes. However, there is truth to this study. The overwhelming stress of a first time in the theater is multiplied by doing a play in New York. From my experiences, first times in show business matter. The first read-through of a television show for a network usually determines if the show's going to get a shot. First auditions for parts are critically important. And as Ed K. Martin taught, the first time an actor and actress reads a script is the most important reading they make. It is the only time an actor or an actress will feel what an audience will feel when they see it. Our first reading at the Manhattan Theater Club would be critical to harness the enthusiasm, not only for the play and the performers, but for all of the support teams, publicity, stage crew, box office. It had to be good. The morning of the reading, Budge came in full of excitement. Stephen, I think I came up with something good for Max Sam. Like what? Ah, thought I'd surprise you. No, 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 I said. Don't worry, pal. I think you and Beth will love it. It's just about what kind of syphilis I have. Well, I mean the kind of syphilis Max Sam has. I'm clean. Well, good, good. You're not changing any lines, are you, Budge? No, never. Beth's words are sacred. Okay, okay, sure. Have fun. The first reading couldn't have started any better. Holly began with a bit of her baton routine that won the crowd over. Then she and Belita destroyed the audience with the beginning of Act One. Hilarious, crazy, heartbreaking. It was so good, we could have opened that afternoon. Pat and Mark didn't drop the ball. Act One was in the books. Lynn looked over to me and mouthed, Wonderful. And it was. And then Act Two began with Budge. In the play, Max Sam, the balloon man, has a number of afflictions. We got to the moment where Max Sam has a coughing fit. Budge began to cough. Then he kept coughing. The audience started laughing. Budge waved at them to stop, but then he kept coughing. The laughter grew. Budge stood up from the table, but his hacking got worse. The audience laughed harder. Then he stopped coughing, signaled to the audience that he was all right, And then he started gagging. The audience started laughing again, crying, applauding. Then, to my amazement, Budge hacked up a giant blood clot onto his script on the table. People screamed. Some stood up in horror. Budge smiled and remained calm. He examined the blood clot. He picked it up off of his script. It left a red stain on the page. He pulled out a hanky and carefully put the blood clot in the hanky. The cast was trying but failing to keep their composure. Budge tried to decide which pocket he wanted to put the hanky with the blood clot in. Then he sat down and quite seamlessly we were back into the script. Budge won the hearts and minds of everyone at the theater. Beth was thrilled. After that reading, I came up to Budge. What the hell was that? I asked. Worked pretty good, huh? didn't it? 
Budge smiled demonically. How did you... Cherries, pal. Canned cherries. You know, like the kind you put in cherry pie. I was checking out the neighborhood, and I saw that Jimmy lives right by a fairway. I thought I'd pick up some snacks, and I noticed this can. And I thought, these cherries look just like a blood clot. You thought that? Yeah. And they're edible. I mean, that's their purpose. But how did you put it in your mouth? Pretty slick, huh? See, I have a little plastic bag in my pocket with the cherries. When I start to cough, it looks like I'm covering my mouth, but I'm really popping in a cherry from the bag. Then I milk the bit for a minute or two, and then at the appropriate moment, spit it out. People scream, stage magic. Amazing, I said. So much skill to bring something so repulsive to life. Budge nodded proudly. Ah, the theater. And once again, I realized Budge majestically took the lowest road possible. With the cherry bit, anything we did in the show would look classy by comparison. Budge turned out to be a rock in rehearsal. He was always on time. He always knew his lines. He was consistent. Everyone in the cast had fun working with him. In the evenings, we usually went all mass to Harrigan's, took over a few tables and dined on fish and chips or shepherd's pie, washed down with our choice of 20 domestic or imported beers while we relived the best and the worst of the day. Harrigan's had a jukebox that featured Irish music. Beth and I danced to songs we never heard of before, driven by penny whistles and fiddles. It was all right. They rocked. At a certain point, everyone started dancing with everyone else. Budge and I usually ended up playing darts, sampling whatever ale they had on tap with shots of whiskey. Rather than the clock, we used our dart game as our gauge. As long as we could make our point, we kept drinking. When we started missing the board, we called it a night. My natural optimism was put on trial. I knew we were going to be a hit but you can never trust the New York Times to like anything good. Rehearsals were productive. Holly was adorable, electric, hilarious, beautiful, furious. She was born to play this part, just as Beth was born to write it. I was tempted to believe nothing could derail us. One morning before rehearsal, Beth and I got a message from Lynn Meadow to meet her in her office. That sounded bad. All the possible paranoias lined up in my brain. The logic of catastrophe works faster than anyone could imagine. Within seconds, I prepared myself for the most logical. Holly got a film and had to drop out of the play. Or Holly didn't like my direction. Or Budge exposed himself. Holly was sitting with Lynn. There was an uncomfortable silence as I waited for someone to start talking. It was Lynn. Someone has threatened the production, the theater... And Holly. Holly nodded and looked at us with her ferocious eyes. Lynn continued, This is difficult, but shall we cancel the show? Holly quietly said, Hell no, I say we do the show. Lynn, I asked, What can the theater do? Holly has to be safe. Lynn nodded, We can provide security. As much as you're comfortable with, Holly. We can bring you to the theater. We could take you home. We'll have added security in the lobby. Appreciate it. Are we good? Holly said as she stood up. I looked at Lynn. We're good, Holly, Lynn said. Tobo, are we doing a run-through today? Yeah, yeah, Holly, and we'll hit any trouble spots. Sounds good. And thanks, Lynn, said Holly. We'll do what we have to do, said Lynn. We all stood in silence for a moment. Right, said Holly. And then she left for rehearsal. I stayed behind with Lynn for a moment. When did this happen? Last night. Holly got a letter. He wrote that he's coming to opening night. 
What? So we're going to have plain clothesmen patting down Frank Rich and John Simon in the lobby before the show? Lynn shrugged. Oh, God. Give me a break. He may have, Stephen. What do you mean, I asked. He bought a ticket. You're kidding! No, said Lynn. We have his address. He lives in Maryland, which means he committed a felony across interstate lines. That brings in the FBI. We called them. They're already on the case. Oh, thank God. So, should we hire someone to follow Holly? Until this guy gets caught, she has to be safe. She shouldn't have to put up with this crap. We can do that, said Lynn. I joined the cast. Holly and I continued rehearsals as if nothing unusual had happened. According to Jonathan Demme's formula, our cast needed to slow down. The show was in wonderful shape, but we needed an audience. Fortunately, we were about to start three weeks of previews before opening night. Be careful what you wish for. Previews are essential for a play, especially for a comedy. They're the only way a show can find its true rhythm. And New York is one of the major hubs of theater in the English-speaking world. You would think these two facts would collide and theatergoers would be clamoring for tickets to see a new play. Not true. At least not for any of the plays I was ever a part of in New York. Preview audiences are usually hard to find. You get friends, family members, actors. <laughs> not, not your best or most objective audience. To remedy this, theaters have started to bus in seniors from nursing homes to see previews. That's good-hearted. But not for my play. Please! Footnote. The best audience for any play is an audience that pays full price. And that's just a fact. They have skin in the game. They will really laugh, really cry, and really walk out at intermission if they hate it. A majority of our preview audiences for Miss Firecracker didn't pay and often didn't know where they were. There were no laughs, no applause. My notes to the cast at the end of the show were usually pep talks when I looked into Pat Richardson's tearful eyes and said, You are wonderful, Pat. Beautiful. Believe me, please. Budge's experience as a stand-up worked well for him. He was used to a lack of response. He took it as a challenge. Some nights he'd cough up three or four cherries instead of the scripted two just to get a rise from the audience. He became like a meteorologist rating hurricanes. If we had a five-cherry night, you know we were playing to an audience that thought they were watching a puppet show in New Jersey. Holly was the rock. She never needed laughs to feed her sense of truth. She had the play and the eyes of the actors on stage. And she didn't say anything about the threat against her. She had the most to lose, and she appeared to be the least discouraged by the lackluster previews. I, on the other hand, was beyond frustrated. I was angry. We had a perfect play, perfect actors, and now it seemed we had almost supernatural forces standing in our way. The previews amounted to a huge waste of time. Our cast sensed we were headed towards failure. Then... I had one moment of encouragement that was as remarkable as the obstacles we were encountering. It was after a silent, laughless Sunday matinee. Our stage manager told me someone wanted to talk to me about the show. They were waiting for me in the house. I walked into the empty theater, not knowing what to expect. Sitting on the back row was a beautiful older woman, and I knew her. I thought, at least... I knew her face, but I couldn't place her. She introduced herself. It was Ingmar Bergman's star, B.B. Anderson. She was the one person Beth and I always admired as one of the greatest actresses of the world. We would see her in any movie she was in, from Wild Strawberries, Seventh Seal, Persona, Scenes from a Marriage. Stephen, B.B. Anderson. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, ma'am. She laughed. I wanted you to know I think this is one of the most special shows I've ever seen. It is so beautiful, powerful. And your leading lady? That Holly. Holly Hunter? Yes, Miss Hunter. She is extraordinary. Yes, I said she is. 
And I apologize for our New York audiences. They seemed unappreciative. They're just old. Don't do anything differently. You will have better audiences. Someday. Bibi smiled and extended her hand. I shook her hand in reverence. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Anderson. Your words mean a lot. Actually, they mean pretty much everything to me right now. Call me Bibi. And I hope to see your play again when you move it to Broadway. Because you will. Well, from your voice to... I look skyward. Bibi laughed and put her hands together in prayer. At this point, my life was complete. Except for a good review from the New York Times. The day of our opening, we rehearsed in the afternoon. I wanted a light, quick rehearsal to get our minds into the play, into one another, and to keep the impending threats as mentally far away as possible. The run-through wasn't encouraging. For the first time, I could see stress in Holly's eyes. One of the hallmarks of her performance was her determination to show the world that Carnell was all right. In Act One, she's strong and confident. Then, toward the climax of Act Two, everything falls apart. But instead of being defeated, Carnell finds her true strength in a moment that is so wonderful, so powerful, I knew it would bring the house down if we ever had a real audience. At our pre-opening run-through, for the first time, Holly played Carnell without confidence. Carnell was fragile and vulnerable, which was truthful. That's what Carnell was really feeling, but that approach would undermine all of the humor Beth wrote and that Holly had had so much success in playing. At the end of the run-through, I gave out a few notes to the cast. I said, oh, and Holly, I think at the beginning, remember, just keep your defenses up. I don't think you'd want to show your family, Elaine and Delmont, that you're really hurting inside. Holly looked up at me and just said, fine. All right. All right, everybody, rest up, focus, and we're going to knock them dead tonight. Everyone dispersed. I stayed behind to talk to the stage crew about the set change between Act 1 and Act 2. The assistant stage manager interrupted me and whispered, Holly wants to see you. She does? I asked. Yes. I turned and looked. The theater was empty. The assistant added, Oh, she's not here. She went to the basement. Oh, all right. I took the old elevator down to sub-basement two. I had never been down here. It was a theater graveyard. It's where all of the old sets and props were warehoused. Kitchens with tables and chairs, some formal, some formica. Cabinets loaded with plates and glasses, crystal and coffee cups. Living rooms with sofas, chairs, rockers, and hat racks. Holly was standing in the shadows at the end of a long aisle in what looked like a hillbilly kitchen set, lit by a single overhead light bulb. She was holding a large carving knife and slapping it against her thigh. Holly, that you? How dare you? Her voice was filled with hurt and rage. What? How dare you? You never give an actor notes on opening night. Never. A million computations went through my mind at the speed of everything. I had heard that sentence, that statement, before. My adrenaline drove me to the exact time and place. It was something Ed K. Martin said. 1976. I was in his acting class with Beth at the University of Illinois. Ed wanted to talk to me about my opening night performance in The Country Wife, which he hated. He thought I was pure pork, translation, that I was a ham. He said it looked like I would do anything for a laugh, and I told him, well, someone has to. You can't expect an audience to sit through a play like this without a couple of laughs. Ed looked at me with horror and said, well, there's nothing I could have done about it unless I worked with you from the beginning. But even then, you never ever give an actor notes on opening night. I began walking towards Holly and said, You're right. I apologize. I, I think it's just the stress. Tears began to run down Holly's face. She said quietly, Damn it. I hate this. I hate this. 
Holly sat on the concrete floor. I kept walking towards her. I know, Holly. I know. I hate this, too. What can we do? said Holly. I sat down on the floor with her. We can... Holly looked at me with eyes that lived somewhere between rage and despair. We can do something else. We don't have to do this, Holly. We've been through too much together. This play means a lot to me. And I know it means a lot to you. I see it every second you're on stage. But the play is nothing. It means nothing. You mean everything. Holly, I say, let's blow it off. Let's blow it off and go out to dinner tonight. Holly burst out with tears and laughter. You're kidding. No, no. I say we call in and we tell her we're canceling tonight and you and me are going out to dinner. Wait, I'll tell you what. We'll go out with the whole cast and crew. We'll make it a party. Now Holly was laughing. But it's opening night. I know. We can do that, she asked. Uh, I don't know why not. I walked over to the old house phone on the wall and I dialed Lynn's extension. Lynn Meadows' office, said the secretary. A Stephen Tobolowsky for Lynn. Lynn came on the line. Lynn, we have a bit of an emergency. There's been an illness in the cast, probably food poisoning. I see, said Lynn. Is there a problem with canceling tonight? Opening later? After a moment of silence, Lynn said, None at all, Stephen. I'll call the newspapers. Right, right, Lynn. Well, we would like to be at our best after all the work we put into the show. I agree, she said. Completely. And, and Lynn, one more thing. If you could have someone contact the cast and the crew... Beth and I are taking everyone out to dinner at P&G's Italian on Amsterdam. I shrugged and looked over at Holly. Holly nodded approval of the dining choice. What, 7.30? You're invited too. Thanks, Stephen, but I think I'll be busy here. Oh, right, right. Well, thank you, Lynn. Thank you. I looked at Holly, who was now staring at me in disbelief. I hung up the phone. Done, I said. Now we can all breathe. And now you don't have to be mad anymore about me giving you notes because it's not opening night. Holly began to laugh again. Man, is this really happening? Holly, we're in a fake kitchen in the basement of a theater, so it must be happening. Impossible. No. No, not impossible. Here's a trivia question. Have you ever missed opening night for a part you were born to play? Holly shook her head. Never. Not true. I smiled and sat back on the floor next to her. You didn't play Cherie in Bus Stop in Detroit. Holly started laughing. Yeah, in the middle of a damn blizzard. Yeah, living in a trailer. I laughed at the memory. You were going to be my beau. I was, I said. What do you think Ed Kay would say about us, about tonight, Holly asked. I'd say he would be happy. He would say, we protected the play, we protected Beth, and you. But the critics, they'll come another night. And all the people, they'll be thrilled. Can you imagine how happy they're going to be when they find out they have an entirely free night in New York City? They're going to have to improvise. We gave them a gift. Well... (laughs) I don't know, but I guess I should get out of this leotard. Yeah, and I better go tell Beth, which I did. Beth was only moderately surprised. Oh, we can do that, she asked. I guess so. Beth reflected for a brief moment. Yeah, it's probably for the best. And so we canceled opening night of the New York premiere of the Miss Firecracker contest. The audience showed up, including the stalker. He was arrested. While all of that excitement was happening at the theater, we were over on Amsterdam celebrating nothing in particular. The cast and crew enjoyed wine and pasta, steak and calamari. Beth and I laughed and made toast to the show that never was. 
We opened a week later. Holly was brilliant. Budge floored the audience, even though it was only a two-cherry night. He stopped the show, coughing up a blood clot, picking it up off of the stage, examining it in his hand, thinking about swallowing it again, and finally, proudly showing it to Holly, who just stared at him in horror. I wanted to shoot him, but people were falling out of their seats. Pat and Margot and Mark and Belita were transcendent. We got rave reviews in the Times. The play ran for a year off-Broadway. Sometimes the show does not have to go on. Footnote. This was the story I was going to tell Ed K. Martin at our lunch in Los Angeles, the one we never had. He would have delighted in it. He would have enjoyed that Beth and I found truth in another one of his crazy theatrical commandments that made no sense to us when we were students. But once we stepped into the world, became our only way to salvation. Postscript. I just looked in my office. I was certain I had a poster of our production of the Miss Firecracker contest squirreled away somewhere among the sticks and stones. I was mistaken. Must be somewhere else, in a box, in a storage locker. At any rate, it's gone. So I have no souvenirs of battle. No notice of service on a foreign shore. All I have is this story. And only part of this story. Like one of Budge's routines, it's hard to say where a story starts and where it ends. If nothing else, this is an example of an Ed K. moment. A moment when an actor is truthful. And in that truth, reveals everything. Sailed out against the sky For she lives in hope and praise For her love in Buckney Bay It's so lonely around the fields of Atten That was The Show Does Not Have to Go On, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. You're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, it's been really powerful to hear you talk about uh, your teacher, Ed K. Martin. You know, reflecting on your stories, I reflect upon how big of a difference all of our teachers make in our lives. You know, Um, it just... Did you have a special teacher that affected you? Uh, many, many, you know, I almost, I almost became an educator at one point. I got a master's degree in education, um, and was thinking about going into education at one point in my life, but, uh, it didn't work out, but I've always had a special place in my heart for, for many of my teachers who have kind of indelibly shaped me. I, I think like a lot of what I conceive of myself as doing on my podcasts is kind of some form of teaching you know what i mean like engaging in dialogue engaging in discourse with people about important topics that i'm passionate about feels pretty pretty similar in some ways to me i'm just a lot less prepared for the lecture than most people <laughs> well i i may be selfish but i'm certainly happy that i happened to bump into you and we we were able to con this project uh, instead of you being tied up in a virtual classroom somewhere on Zoom, David. Uh, well, don't uh, don't count your chickens yet. You know that still may happen <laughs> at some point. We'll see. Um, but in the meantime, yes, I'm glad uh, you are here sharing your stories with us, and that our listeners are here listening to us. Now, Stephen, in addition to finding more episodes of his podcast at TopolowskiFiles.com, we've also launched a YouTube channel where you can watch. Uh, some of your stories uh, in YouTube video format. Where can people find that, Stephen? I think that would be at... (laughs) Here we go, drumroll. That would be at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I thought you were going to repeat it. You usually repeat it, so... 
I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So I got it right at the beginning and the end of the podcast. That's right. You nailed it. You nailed it. Uh, YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. Uh, if you want to find more of my work, check out my other podcast, Culturally Relevant, featuring interviews with filmmakers, uh, artists, writers, and other cool people around the internet. Thanks to Simplecast for powering this episode of the podcast. Simplecast.com is a great place to find an excellent podcast management and, and analytics solution we appreciate Simplecast supporting the Tobolowski Files. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. Lord.